Hello, and welcome to Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, joined as always by my co-host, David Roberts. Permission to Be exists to be a space of hope for those journeying to find their true, authentic selves. We hope that the story shared here will inspire you on your own journey and help you unlock the permission to be who you have always truly been. Hello and welcome to Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley. Joining me today is my co-host, David Roberts, and our very special guest, Bree Stallings. Bree, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. It's truly a blessing and honor. So Bree is native to North Carolina. For those of you who do not know already, we are based out of Charlotte, North Carolina. She is a multimedia artist, an illustrator, writer, and activist. She has a really amazing art install that she is currently putting together, which is called To Be Seen and Celebrated and will open at the end of January. So by the time you're hearing this, it will probably have been open about a week or so, maybe two weeks, but it'll be open for the whole month of February. It's located in the metropolitan area of Uptown Charlotte, because if you're not in Charlotte, we call our downtown Uptown because we are like that. And you can find out more information about that at Bree's website, which is breestallings.com. Yeah, that's correct. Everything's all located on there. And then the project actually has its own website too, which is www.tobeseenandcelebrated.com. But you can also find it on my main page as well. Sweet. So David, you met Bree for the first time at with conference this past fall. Yeah. So how that happened was, so just real quick, I am part of a kind of a cohort or coalition of progressive kind of post-evangelical churches and faith leaders called the With Collective. And my home church here in Charlotte, Watershed, hosted their uh, second annual national gathering back in November. And it has been always kind of been a value of With that our exploration of faith and justice, kind of the intersections thereof, uh, include artistic elements. Uh, One of our board members, Lenicia, uh, Rose Tinsley is a gifted artist and is always really kind of just pushing us to make sure that that stays centered in our exploration of faith and justice and leadership and ministry and all of that. And so as we were kind of in the months leading up to the November event, Lenicia was really hoping to connect with some local Charlotte artists who might be able to partner with us for the event, display some of their work, and just maybe participate in other ways. And uh, one of our local keynote speakers, a local pastor here named Ray McKinnon, uh, who is a mutual friend of Brie and mine, uh, suggested Brie. So I connected Lenicia and Brie and they hit it off. And no, and Brie was awesome. She she contributed some of her art, partnered. Uh, you, you partnered with Lenicia for a, a breakout session. Is that correct? Yeah, we were going to, but I think um, things got a little like mixed up. But I think that there's an opportunity for more expansion in the way of like arts thinking for the future awesome. um, conventions and gatherings. And I think that this year was kind of like a dipped toe into that like the value in it and how that like kind of sure, expands sure. people rather than repels people to that idea. And then additionally to contributing some of the art, some of her art just to the aesthetic of the of the gathering, Brie also participated in a panel of local faith leaders and activists um, that was moderated by uh, Mia McLean, associate pastor at Myers Park Baptist Church, also included Ray McKinnon, uh, Greg and Helms, Jennifer Gerald, um, mm-hmm. who are local faith leaders and, and pastors. So Mm-hmm. Really kind of exploring um, kind of the intersection of faith, activism, and the arts in Charlotte. And I don't remember if I've told you this, Brie. I'd heard Ray talk. I'd heard Helms talk. I'd heard Greg talk. I kind of knew what they were going to kind of bring to the table of that conversation. But I hadn't really corresponded with you outside of just our emails. And I thought you had by far some of the most profound and insightful things to say in that conversation. I thought you added just a ton of insights and perspective uh, that I think would have otherwise been there. And so I was really glad that because Lenicia, I think, was the one in our meetings who had kind of said, let's stick Brie on that panel. And so, yeah, sure. Why not? And I'm really glad that she pushed for that because I think you were awesome. Yeah, thank you. I, I accept it. That's very generous. And I had a great time. And I think as someone who grew up in a faith community and felt 
kind of rejected and also traumatized by that, I was a little bit hesitant to uh, join in. Mm-hmm. Of course, I think I was just kind of entranced and like girl crushing on Lenicia and her work. And so I was like, fine, I guess. Um, if she says it's okay, I, th- I guess it'll be okay. <laughs> um, and then seeing, you know, some of my friends on the panel help me, you know, just feel a little bit more comfortable with that. But being in that space and then seeing what you guys are doing with the podcast and um, with with as like a whole entity has been really inspiring and dare I say like healing and reaffirming in a lot of ways. So it's been a two way street and I'm just really grateful that that experience has come to fruition. And I'm just going to throw this out here because um, I'm not sure, I believe you might've had a chance to meet one of our other keynote speakers for that event, a friend of the podcast, Robin Henderson Espinoza. And they and myself were on the phone yesterday, just kind of dreaming and brainstorming ways to get Robin back to Charlotte to do some sort of mm-hmm. event or something like that. Exactly. And had the opportunity recently to read Robin's book, Activist Theology. And something that stands out in reading Robin's book and something that really kind of was impressed upon me in a seminary class I took in the fall was how crucial art is to any revolutionary movement. And as I look at some of both kind of the faith and political, both together and separately, movements that are kind of budding right now in our world and in Charlotte, one thing that I'm noticing is that we need more art. And I'm not an artist. I don't bring anything to the table really in that regard, but I kind of have this firm conviction now. Anyway, all that to say is Robin and I are still in the early stages of this conversation, but they mentioned you by name as someone who, (laughs) if we can figure this out and get Robin and some of their colleagues back here to Charlotte to do an event like that, you were someone who they mentioned, like, Bree's got to be involved. Their stuff was really cool. It was great listening to you, uh, they said, in the panel. And so just know you have an admirer in Dr. Robin Hespinoza. Yeah. And, and yeah, so hopefully, you. you know, down the road, this is something that we can put together. Yeah, I've definitely admired their work. I didn't actually get to meet them that night. I just saw Robin and I guess maybe their partner and audience. And mm-hmm. uh, Robin was like aggressively shaking mm-hmm. their head at like, <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm nervous, but um, this person's making me feel real good <laughs> right now. Like, the body is like agreeing, mm. like, you know, I was, I was bringing up talking about like feeling uh, the ways that I present like as a fat woman being a muralist and artist and how um, as a young person, like people challenge me. And as like a woman who shows up in spaces and as a white passing person, like all of these things mm. go up and how people question and assume and then but Robin's head was just like bouncing along. So then I connected with them afterwards and they've agreed to share like a little bit about my project and I'm going to share some about theirs. So that makes me feel just really like held and happy. Um, and I would love, I would love that. And I totally agree that there needs to be more art. Um, when we talk about art, you know, even thinking about theologically, we think about like art being the Bible of the literate. And when they used to travel, the massive paintings around town to town, and tell the stories of the Bible. Um, before people could read them and still had the oral tradition being passed down. Art did that, you know, and it was, that's why it was happened. Mm -hmm. Um, And then as things changed and things became more humanist and rather than like church controlled, art really just became a way for people to express things. So a lot of times people say that history is written by the winners, but art, I think, tells how people were feeling about history on both sides of it. And so if we don't have the other um, side of that, then we, we're really missing a lot of it. And of course, we know that a lot of voices have been silenced or pressed down over time. So there is still a lot missing out, mm-hmm. but um, it provides us a full scope into the human experience that I think is like everlasting when you look at art through the ages. Mm-hmm. So what started you on your journey, Brie, of this passion? I mean, other than it's just naturally in your being. Yeah, I'm from a family of artists. Um, My grandfather is a potter here in the area named Jack Sexton of JS Pottery. And I grew up going to his studio and pressing handles on coffee mugs for 25 cents each and thinking I was like a big baller (laughs) back in the day, making like $8 a week or something. Um, I remember specifically like being in his studio space and he would have these tour buses come in of people that would just come from, I don't even know where, but, and like flood his studio and and buy up all the stuff around Christmas time. And Mm -hmm. sometimes he would let me run the cast register, which I liked. And, or sometimes he'd like, let me like make cider and hand it out. And 
I was with shy kids, mm. so that was that fit fit well for me. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think it was just always like possible because I just saw it, and it wasn't it wasn't discouraged. My mom is also an artist as well, and she's a painter and taught me how to paint. And we share a studio space together at C3 Lab now in um, South End. So it's really sweet to be able to work around my mama. And then my paternal grandparents, um, my grandfather on that side, they're the ones that are native to Charlotte. So I go four generations deep, which is like not unheard of around here. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, on one side, my, my mom's side of the family is from Japan. On my dad's side, my grandfather sold paper. And so not necessarily as creative as like being a potter, but I just, I spent a lot of time there with my cousin growing up. It was like a second home to me. And I just, I mean, we must have gone through thousands, tens of thousands of sheets of paper. And we were just, he had a whole like back patio just full of like paper that they got left over and all these textures and colors and patterns. And we would just make all this stuff. And I think we were just like never told no, Mm -hmm. you know, like no Mm -hmm. stop or no, you're wasting it or no, you're you're screwing it up or, you know, and I, I think just seeing that it was possible and that somebody could make a living with it and and that I was just like allowed to like be at my own devices and just like figure things out made me like a really like tough like <laughs> kind of hard-headed girl that was going to like just entertain myself and figure things out and make a way and that's awesome I think as much as being around the artists in my family it was also just being around this um to use the word like kind of the theme of the podcast but like permission like permission to just create and mm-hmm. I don't um, stunted or like shamed in that way. Like I think a lot of people are like, oh, you should be a doctor or a lawyer. My family always knew I was smart and they just trusted me that I would do whatever was best for me. And it's it's worked out so far. That's an amazing gift yeah. that your family gave you. I mean, it's so rare. And as a parent, you know, right now of a five and an eight-year-old, that is words to live by and to learn from. Um, yeah. Because I'm naturally prone to not do that because that's not how I was raised. Yeah. But I I love that image of you finding your strength in the freedom to explore. Yeah. That is just, mm, that's wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. I love that. Thank you. Brie, you said something um, a moment ago that I'm sure it's a common phrase, but you, you talked about, you know, kind of art being the Bible of the illiterate. And I think there's so much richness in that imagery. You know, a lot of the conversations that Becca and myself and our other co-host, Tommy, and some of the guests that we have on this podcast, you know, center around, you know, the faith journey, and which is often out of or into a more just, generous, inclusive uh, form of Christianity, or maybe something that doesn't even include Christianity or the Bible at all anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, and yet, you know, the notion of the Bible and, you know, you know, people talk about this or that being their Bible and stuff like that. And so I think that idea of art being the Bible of the illiterate, it translates. And it doesn't have to just be, you know, kind of in, you know, the context that you talked about, you know, in ancient times and stuff like that, as beautiful and powerful as it was in that context. But I think about the intersection of your work, for example, and, you know, for example, what you're doing with this upcoming exhibition, and love to hear in a second the way that that's going to contribute to what's going on in Brook Hill and whatnot. But just the way that I think, if we think of a literacy, not in terms of the ability to read kind of in its most... Uh, literal sense, but, you know, literacy and the ability to access and read and understand our present cultural moments and the instances of oppression and marginalization and the way that I think art can translate and communicate those realities and create a sense of angst or hope or, you know, yearning for liberation in ways that, you know, just talking about it perhaps can't. I don't know. I, I hadn't heard that phrase before. And I just thought it was a really beautiful sentiment and one that I think is going to stick with me and I'm thinking about for a really long time. Yeah, you should you should look it up and, and do some research into it. But it makes me think more and, and in the vein of what you're saying more about not just like terms of like history and when people were not taught to read and write and you know, they would carry these, these paintings around and tell the stories of the Bible. But like, you're right, there's other ways that we can be literate. And some of them are more accessible than others. And of course, like, being able to read and write is one of them that a lot of us take for granted. But like, we can be like emotionally literate and mm-hmm. have access to certain things. And I think that art can kind of tie those things together. We can be culturally literate in a way that's sensitive and understanding. 
We can also be culturally literate in a way that's um, inaccessible to many people because it becomes really academic. Sure. And I think art bypasses a lot of that. And if you look at everything around you is, is designed by someone with form or function or both, and it conveys a message. It tells us something is either safe or warm or for sharing. And we have all of these, this programming in our heads is like these kind of advanced beings that thrive on aesthetics. And I think that aesthetics and art and beauty is a human right and a human need that we don't mm-hmm. want to talk about. And I think when we think about ways that we take those things away from people, when we put people in like, you know, gray jail cells, we don't, outright think of those things but it is a way to kind of starve the soul and it's a form of torture mm-hmm. um, because it deprives us of a way to communicate by receiving and by also contributing back something that lives underneath but also beyond words so you're absolutely right about that and i think a lot of people will say like they don't get art but it's you don't have to get anything or innately understand it all these symbols that go on in our technology we understand what red means we understand what <laughs> green means or green light oh we have all these things that we're just fed all the time that just feed into our subconscious and we can communicate a lot quite simply. And that's powerful. Do you think the hesitation with a lot in regards to like when people say I don't get art or feel like that's a very Western culture that we have, some of us have been taught to believe that art is for a certain socioeconomic class. Right. And We've created these, as a a culture, we have created these mental barriers that I feel like it needs to be broken down so we can see what we're missing because we've been, some people have been taught that it's not for them. Yeah, I think that that's like a a symptom of white supremacy. (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) is that you take something that people who are now marginalized have been doing forever, including like the oral storytelling tradition and creating symbols and music and other things. And then you, you know, make a commodity out of it and then profitize off of that and creates Mm -hmm. this level of academia that, like I said, becomes inaccessible. And Mm -hmm. it creates a distance between, like I said earlier, this, these people's like innate feelings and and ways of communication that seem inaccessible but and I think a lot you're right a lot of people's like it's kind of a defensive thing like oh I just don't get it and it's like okay that's fine but I don't think that's necessarily true I think you know what their I don't get it might translate into is saying I don't have that space held for me and and I don't have the vocabulary to articulate that and I, I feel that a lot with the communities that I'm working with that it's not necessarily something that is or is an experience it's about having the space created and then just giving, you know, the power to articulate something. It's not, I'm not giving it to anybody that I'm working with. I'm just creating space for them to find it themselves. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's a, I think that's a symptom of white supremacy is that we take space and we hold it all up and then we charge for admission into it. Yep. <laughs> so it's like yes. essential like human experience. And I'm like, I'm so mm-hmm. like against that, but yeah, it, it's innate. And I think it's just about, if you started to explain it in terms that that people might understand in language that they use, then um, everyone would agree that it's it's quintessential. Mm-hmm. If you could create an exhibit, what would your dream exhibit be? <laughs> oh man, that's a hard question because I think I don't know yet. Like I don't know, and I feel like each mm-hmm. exhibit that I work on, like I'm like, wow, this is it. Like this is the thing that my like heart and soul has been like working on in April of 2019, I opened a show called where I'm from mm-hmm. explored all of the different places in which I've lived, including the childhood home that I grew up in that got foreclosed upon on my 21st birthday while I was in college mm. and then my grandparents' homes. And like, we don't have access to any of those spaces anymore just because we don't have generational wealth. And yeah. Um, and then also like the, the apartment that I live in now, which is the first place that I've ever lived alone. And it's just really weird um, <laughs> to experience those extreme, like stark differences, but more abstractly than that, it talked about my own body and my mother's body. Cause I lived in her body at one point too. Yep. Um, and how she, how she views and talks about her body, like, you know, directly like DNA coded into my experience, <laughs> how I see myself through her lens and how I see myself through my lens sometimes too. And I had a great time exploring all of that with that show. And I was like, it just felt like such a, an apex to like all of this experience mm-hmm. that I've been wanting to articulate and just 
put together and like show people. And I was so nervous and so excited about it at the same time. And I did it and now I'm like, okay, what's next? And so <laughs> and I, I think, you know, things sometimes just come like, come rushing to me and I'm working on, I'm working on the biggest mural in Gaston County right now for the United Way down there called Flourish. And it's three murals expanding over 4,000 square feet and it glows in the dark. Wow. You know, it glows in the dark. dark. (laughs) And and I'm really like stretching my capabilities because I was like, yeah, I can do that and like sign the contract and everything. I was like, can I do that? Like, like literal skills to do this and you know so show up every day like shitting my pants and shaking (laughs) and do it anyway but you know in my busy state that's when this other idea for my other project came and I was like well what if I did this and I and I think that sometimes um in that way it feels almost divine and like active like prayer and exchange because it's like I, I don't know um Elizabeth Gilbert talks about it in her book, Big Magic, where she says, you know, an idea comes to you and if you don't use it, it like goes on to the next person and mm-hmm. like yeah. goes around. But it's like an idea has its own like personality and entity and like purpose. And that's what mm-hmm. it felt like. It was like, this is my, it's like seated in my soul now and I have to do it and it's not going to go away until it just becomes so uncomfortable that it just like bursts forth. Me. Yep. And um, I always surprise myself because they always come in like the busiest times and I'm like, really self you know but Mm -hmm. um I've learned to like kind of quiet that a little bit and just like listen and have fun with it so to kind of piggyback off that then you know you've you've you know in our short conversation already you've named a handful of places where you draw influence or inspiration you've named your grandparents your mother where you've come from you know experiences and things like that but this can be kind of like a retrospective thing, you know, maybe as you think to your past and your your kind of artistic journey up to this point, or even in the present moment or both, but like, what are some of the things right now or in the past that have or do, you know, inspire you kind of, you know, kind of stereotypically speaking, kind of serve as a muse of sort as you are, you know, thinking about dreaming about, you know, projects that you've done or want to do and, you know, things like that. Is, is that like too cliche of a question? Like, oh, where does the artist find inspiration? Or, or is that something that you actively think about, you know, kind of like on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, I actively think about it. And I think it, it shifts and changes, but you're right. I'm, I'm very much like have been dwelling and thinking about not to use the word again, but to trying to articulate the experiences of my family mm-hmm. and the where I'm mm-hmm. from show, I gave each of my family members like an archetype. So my grandfather was the red clay potter because he uses the red clay of, of mm-hmm. you know, of the East mm-hmm. Coast and down there. Yeah. Um, and my grandmother was the migrant mother and my dad was the lost boy and you know, like all these things. And like, I described myself as like a Gorgon, like Medusa and people were like, so curious about that. And it's like, well, I'm just, I just find inspiration between all of these stories that we've been telling for so long and how they connect with us and how we identify at different stages. And so I'm I'm constantly curious about this idea of truth and identity and whose truth is whose and um, who has like permission to tell the truth and Mm -hmm how much of the truth is all truth, like the same. And that it came up a lot, especially like working with my family exhibit. Cause my mom was like kind of recapping these stories that sh- she had told me. And I was like, no, you told me like totally different. I remember that. And now you're telling me like a whole nother different thing. And that was just like, so fascinating to me that like truths can change and not necessarily like, I don't think she was like lying to me, but I also, I remember like exactly how she told me this like first original traumatizing as fuck like situation because I, I remember her exact words and where yeah. we were sitting when she told me and so it makes me think about the truth that we tell ourselves and the truth that we tell our group and our community and then our identities the ones that we choose mm-hmm. and the ones that we are given and that plays out a lot in my work and my curriculum writing and in the workshops that I do and I think it shows up over and over again just in different vessels and in my work. Mm. It's really interesting. I have been sitting with the reality of how much we need to really heal our ancestral yeah. history um, in order to move forward as individuals. And I'm not meaning, I mean, yeah. just individual people that it really starts. And healing doesn't mean fixing, I don't believe, but sometimes it means learning and acknowledging. Um, it's become a thing, I feel like we have, well, 
hate to say this again, but in the West, <laughs> we run from um, and we are so fixated on the present and we forget mm. um, to just sit with who we really are. And when you're talking about your mom and the fact that, you know, she told it to you one way and then her truth looked different later on. It made me think about how our lenses change and how as we grow and evolve that our perception of a situation can take on a totally different, yeah. I wouldn't want to say details, but a different feeling. And then the story does transform. And like you said, it doesn't make it less true, but it's transformed with our lens of um, how we view the world. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think you know, this concept, and I don't know if you've heard of it, but like seven generations back and seven generations forward, yes. <laughs> I mm -hmm. feel very yep. called that that's like one of my purposes in life is to kind of like undo some like family and karmic curses. And it's like, mm -hmm. I've been told by a couple people that that's like part of it. And it's like, well, shit, <laughs> but I do like, um, I do feel it. Like I do feel like this kind of burden almost. And I think a lot of people like within mm -hmm. our generation are also feeling that burden to kind of like right like some wrongs and to do some of that but I also feel deeply that like I you know I was thinking about it and people ask me this question all the time and I talk about it like I did earlier about my grandfather and growing up in the studio and being um exposed to that but I think about my grandmother who migrated here from Japan to be his wife his you know bride of war as some people call it gotcha and uh how just like totally like she just like bailed him out all the time and uh, like took care of everything mm. and always found a way to like feed her five kids and mm. you know make everything so graceful and like make clothes and make jewelry and like make a beautiful home mm. and make like the best like damn like Thanksgiving meal ever year after year after year and it's just like that wasn't her culture no no and and it was like I found this like while going through and preparing for this um where I'm from show I was like wow, that was so creative. <laughs> like just her, like uh, the act of survival is so creative, like just to make it mm. together and to do it so gracefully is like so damn creative. And I was just like, had this moment of clarity. Like it's not like the time that we spend like sitting at our easel or like in our production booth. It's like the way that we mm. ease through life and it reminds me of, of a yoga teacher who I've gone to for many years now. And we joke about it because I've been going to her for four boyfriends. <laughs> um, <laughs> like all of my boyfriends are like in her marketing material because no guys ever go to her class. <laughs> she like mix it up sometimes. But I have a yoga teacher <laughs> that I, I love and adore and I've gone to her forever. And she says that it's not necessarily about like the, like achieving like the perfect yoga pose, but it's about how you handle like your body in the transition. And I think that that's so beautiful. Like, you just focus in the transition then like what you're going to be doing is right rather than like trying to do a handstand and then like falling and like breaking your neck and then trying to do the next thing. It's like, that's not, that's not what this is about. And so it makes me think about that, like how creative and how beautiful the transition can be and how I can focus on that rather than like these peak moments and like live a really beautiful life. <sighs> yeah, you're going to get quoted on that one. That is... Uh, I love Yeah, well, that's all Kelly Carbony Wood. She's a peace-filled mama. Should follow her out. She's all for, like, like queer people of color, like, liberation and yoga spaces. And she's uh, she's the bomb. Um, I'm really interested in the piece of your history, the piece of your story that, that um, is related to your Japanese ancestry. And do you – like, how – do you, do you feel connected to that culture of origin in any way uh, beyond your grandmother? Uh, do you still see that coming out and whether it's in your work or just in, you know, aspects of your life outside of your artistic endeavors and things like that? You know, you mentioned being white passing earlier, and I, I didn't know that that, was, that that was part of your background. I think that's really interesting. And so um, – Yeah. So yeah, my mom, um, she also has some Native American background as well. And so she's half Japanese and half, we're not sure because my grandfather has a confusing background, but her and all of her siblings have this dark red, ruddy skin and um, dark features, uh, dark eyes, um, dark hair. And uh, she looks nothing like me. <laughs> so it's very interesting. I, um, my dad, we always joke, he's like white as bread. And then he's like the whitest man alive. But he doesn't have any melanin. He just has like a shower of freckles. Mm -hmm. um, 
and like his eyes are so light they're like very sensitive and he has like white eyelashes and <laughs> it's fascinating but yeah i think when my grandmother came here and she started raising her kids here in the 50s and 60s you have to think that it was still during the time of Japanese internment camps in America. Mm. And when they came back actually to the station in South Carolina, they were not allowed there because it was still illegal in both North Carolina and South Carolina to have an interracial marriage, even though all of these army men were bringing back um, mm. women from Japan. Cause there's, there's a lot of people in this area with that story. Um, we know a lot of like people, my mom's sure. age are half Japanese and um, have, you know, kept in touch with them a lot over the years and but um uh, a lot of america was still very anti-japanese and so i think as like a form of assimilation like my grandmother didn't teach them any of that like didn't teach them any japanese like not much about their culture and it's so funny because i think it's it's so weird but like in the south like there's two races white and black and only recently now there's like white black and like right. other and i think in other parts of the other parts of the country, it's maybe not like that, but in the South, like, and there's even these like kind of unspoken rules about, about the two races that are inherently like taught. But I think like through my mom's eyes, like it was like growing up in the sixties, it's like, well, at least we're not black. And it's just like, what a confusing fucked up statement. But I think that was like the, the feeling. And I think because, you know, they're not black that she views herself as white and like no one ever seeing her would ever assume that. And a lot of people actually, she speaks Spanish and like, will come up to her all the time and, mm-hmm. um, and say things. And I mean, we've definitely, like, she's definitely been racially profiled, like when we're together and she's been pulled over, I've been in the car with her and she's been pulled over way more times than like me and my dad have. And when we go mm-hmm. out as a family, like a lot of people assume that we're like getting separate checks, like our whole life, which is so weird. Cause like, obviously, like together Mm. so it just like Mm. shows up in all of these weird ways but I think um from my generation um and all of my cousins on that side we're all girls on that side there's a lot of us and um we were like really excited about the Japanese culture and I think my grandmother got really kind of um re-energized like trying to share a lot of that um with us and so and she would go back and forth to japan like bring us home things and it was like the coolest thing ever to get like like hello kitty stuff when i was like 10 like this is japanese like it's got like japanese letters on it and stuff and um, i just and you know she would kind of like teach me some like growing up and i wish i had like taken that more seriously and she passed about two years ago and yeah i just wish like i had like taking a lot of that more seriously and like learned as much as I could from her. Cause she was just such a fascinating woman. And I, I think something that I like really grieve now is like not getting to know her like as a woman, like me being a woman and knowing her as a woman, not just as, like my grandmother figure. But yeah, I think like our generation, like growing up, like mm-hmm. kind of revitalized that mm-hmm. for her in a way that like wasn't acceptable or like really possible growing, like raising her kids in the fifties and sixties. Yeah, makes Mm. sense. You just shared so much things that I had no idea about, which is so important for every person to tell their story. For one, being the fact that that coming back when your grandmother came back with your grandfather, that they couldn't even come on base because it was the interracial marriages in North and South Carolina. And... I also just want to encourage people who are listening, some of the simple things that we just do not think about, and when I say we, I do mean those of us who are white, is things like Brie and her mom and dad going to lunch somewhere and then wanting to split the check and the impact that has on her life starting as a young age. And I just, we have to start waking up to the reality of how our nation has existed and there are a lot of us who have been able to live a very, have a very uh, skewed and sheltered view um, because of our privilege. And there are things that people have walked through their entire lives that we just don't understand. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of little things too. And, you know, David 
David brought up the point, you know, that I earlier I call myself white passing and it's a, it's a complicated thing. I think, um, I think anywhere, um, because like I, I got my dad's like light features and light eyes and I don't look anything like my cousins on that side of the family. And it's just been very interesting to yeah. feel like a part of a family, but then not a part of a family. And, but at the same time, like any room that I walk into, people are going to assume that I'm white and it depends on like, I don't even know, but it depends. But like, mostly I check like white on like boxes when they ask, ask on like information forms and stuff. And that's definitely a form of privilege, but also, um, and I was talking to my boyfriend about this not too long ago, because we were talking about people being like having color like facial blindness for people like across mm. race boundaries when they're identifying mm-hmm. like suspects for crimes. Like we're really good at identifying faces like within our race, but not good like outside of our race. And I was like, that's so weird. I'm like really good at like identifying yeah. faces and like blah, blah, blah. And he's like, well, your family looks like, you know, all over the place. And I was like, huh, that's kind of funny because, you know, and it comes up a lot in the, in the art world too, because there's this talk of like who owns which stories. And, you know, I struggle with that as I paint people of color sometimes in my own work and like on this, you know, big mural that I'm doing and like, who's, is that my story to tell? I don't know. It's confusing, but I definitely like, I grew up Mm -hmm. and like the first vision of beauty I had was like these brown women. That's my truth. And Mm -hmm. how I show up and how people perceive me in the world doesn't like negate that truth, but it does provide a totally different experience. Mm Because you have so many different cultures represented within your family, it seems like that that just gives you a special vision for art. I feel like that sounds cheesy, but I don't know how else to say that. Like It's almost like you have this lens that very few people have. Yeah, maybe. And I think a lot of times people ask me like, what kind of art I do? And if they have like more than five seconds and I'm like not in a rush, I'll be like, I, I like to say that I'm a portrait artist. Hmm. And I, I paint portraits and I, you know, it makes me think about the eyes project that I'm working on now. And I, I get like choked up, like almost looking at these people's portraits. Cause I just feel like I feel deeply like for these people. And, yeah. um, and I truly believe that like, you don't, you don't really love someone until you paint them. Mm. So you should try painting the people you love. Cause I think you'll have an emotional moment, even if you feel like you can't paint, like maybe spend the time to try. And I feel mm-hmm. like I'm just like kind of in love with all of these people that I've painted. Cause you just like have this moment of where you're just studying their face and then and it makes you like question like your own things I'm like wow I love that my eyes like aren't perfectly symmetrical it's so beautiful wow or like all these other things that I just I don't know that seem kind of like divine when I notice them in other people if people have a lot of time to hear that answer I like to always say that I'm a self-portrait artist because I think all the all of my work is self-portrait even the portraits of other people because we there was this, you know, however many hours I spent on this thing, there was a connection between me and this person in the canvas that doesn't exist beyond that moment. And it feels, it all feels like self-portrait. Mm. Do you remember the first person you painted? Um, I have the first painting that my mom and I did together and her name is Robin and it was of a Robin <laughs> and we still have that painting. And like, it was pretty good. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Like seven-year-old, I look at it now and I'm like, that was pretty good. <laughs> but I, I don't know. I, I think I always like just grew up like drawing people and like as like a teeny bopper was really into like drawing like girls with different outfits and stuff. Hence comes in like the 10,000, 100,000 sheets of paper that we went through at my grandfather's because it was like everyone gets six outfits and we would like cut it all out. But I think I was just like always like consumed and like, uh, like seeing and studying other people and like finding them like so fascinating. So Brie, your current art installation, I believe from that, well, you've got a couple of them going on. I should say you've got the United Way one and the one in Metropolitan Uptown. But the one in Metropolitan Uptown, I believe you said that the proceeds go to the Brook Hill community. And one of the things that I was noticing on your Facebook page when you were talking about it was that this is a community and it's in South End. And if you are local from Charlotte, when you think of South End currently, and if you've, especially if you've not lived here long, you don't think of a community in need. And so I would love for you to talk a little bit more about this community and the fact that um, what a lot of us who aren't native from Charlotte, or honestly, if you've only been here five years, you might not know this, is that there is a mass amount of gentrification going on, but there's still people there who are 
in need of support, not to be saved, but just general support. Bri, can you talk a little bit about that and what the proceeds go to exactly? Yeah. So like we talked about a little bit, Brook Hill Village is a community in South End, and now it has this trendy name of Loso Lower South End. And Becca's totally right. It's it's not a place that you drive through and you're like, these people aren't hurting for anything. But there's there's a couple of developments over there that are still low-income housing and subsidized housing, one being Southside Homes and one being Brook Hill Village. And Brook Hill Village is on, was on a 99-year land lease. They've been there for a very long time. They're the oldest residents of South End that a lot of mm. people just totally overlook and don't consider into the equation um, when they have like South End development meetings. And I know that firsthand when I sit in and like, well, what about the you know residents of Brook Hill? Who's, who's adding their voices into that and why aren't they present in these conversations? It's at the corner of Remount and Tryon. And okay. it stretches pretty far. A lot of people saw that the houses that were facing Bremont got torn down and that the houses that are facing Tryon are boarded up. And so a lot of people assume that people don't live there anymore. And that's not true. As of last count, 221 people still live in Brook Hill. And I think that number shocks a lot of people. The front homes are boarded up, but only because there was a fire and then some vagrants came and actually lived in those homes and burrowed a tunnel underneath. And so they, they shut those down, but the community is still, still popping in the back. Like there's a lot of people and I've been working closely with Miss Debbie Williams at the Brook Hill Community Resource Center and then Lisa Howell of uh, Myers Park UMC and Ray, of course, like we talked about earlier, saw Tryon UMC and then just a couple of people in that area to just get an idea of mm. like what the needs for Brook Hill Village were. So to give you some context, Brook Hill is like across the street from my studio space. It's very close. It's within walking distance mm. of C3 Lab. And a lot of the work that I do is I try to be very specific in my giving. So I've, I've worked for a lot of nonprofits. I got my start working for a nonprofit early on, a granting nonprofit nonetheless, and started giving out money to Charlotte artists. So very quickly in my career, I became someone who people were asking questions about things uh, rather than the other way around. So it was very exciting to be like a hub for a lot of people in that way, very quickly, very young. But as I've grown, I, I, I noticed that like people do well with like direct money giving. And I think often we don't, uh, we don't take that into account because we're, I guess, scared or concerned that people won't spend the money like they say they will, or like people who are in need, like maybe don't know the best way to spend money that they need. And that's just like simply not true. You mean we're privileged with our money? Yeah, totally. And, and we're like, tightwadded even when it leaves our hands. Mm-hmm. It makes me think specifically about, I remember when our home was being foreclosed upon uh, while I was in college, I had this moment of clarity where I was like, wow, 500 bucks would like turn this domino fall into another direction. Mm-hmm. And it, it was true. Like this, like something could have been reversed and undone in this whole situation that's unfailed since then. But because of this like small amount of money and like, would anybody, is anybody listening? Does anybody care? Mm-hmm. And and when I had my last show where I'm from, I worked to raise funds for a family in need and I just gave them money. And it was like, I wanted to practice like showing people like we can like share these funds around and we can give directly to people. And even though I work with a lot of amazing nonprofits, it doesn't always have to funnel in through and siphon through something else. And so mm-hmm. I got the idea of wanting to incorporate the eyes for the To Be Seen and Celebrated show and the theme of sight into giving back to the Brook Hill Vision Fund, which is something that myself and my friend Jessica White of Jessica L. White and Associates, who's helping me with the project, has pieced together. And so it's direct person-to-person fundraising. And we're working with a couple of different organizations and optometrists and like Costco and like other things. So we're trying to like just totally capitalize on the opportunity to match as many people in Brook Hill with eye exams and updated corrective lenses. So starting, you know, starting now and then by the end of March, there's going to be glasses on faces that aren't there currently. And so what is it like to have like the specific goal and the specific idea? And from that, we've we've understood that like collecting the data is a little bit complicated. We've gone directly to the rent office. A lot of the most everybody in Brook Hill pays weekly rent. So it's not a monthly basis, they pay weekly. And so we've been working with Mm -hmm. the rent office to like 
collect the signups. A lot of them don't have internet access. And so like sending out an email flyer is like not the way to go because that's inaccessible to a lot of people. And it's just about like taking the time, which Lisa and her team have been working really diligently with on like manpower of like going around knocking door to door and like explaining it and asking for signups. And we want to make it as accessible as possible. So we'll have people on site who are helping with paperwork and helping with transportation because those are all barriers that a lot of people don't understand as to that keep people away from the care that they need. And so I just wanted to model that person-to-person fundraising for this project, which is the third component of, of To Be Seen and Celebrated, the first of which is that I'm collecting 100 custom eye painting orders, and they're 150 bucks each. And they can all be ordered through the website that I mentioned earlier, com. Throughout the month of February, so if you're listening to this then, feel free to come visit me at the Metropolitan where the second component of the exhibit is going on because I'll be hosting office hours. I'll be there Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday during regular business hours with my door open. So come in. You're welcome to still buy an eye. I'm still going to be painting them as long as people buy them because I think as many people can get glasses, like why not? Mm. And I think more people who are like hearing about it, like it's ramping up and it's probably going to be like over a hundred people who are wanting these. And I'm also, while the Metropolitan has been such a gracious sponsor for this space, I mean, it's beautiful. It's big. It's got all this natural light. It's got a ton of free parking. It's accessible. It's on the greenway. It's on a bus route. The bathrooms are accessible. Like these are all things that are really important to me as a community worker. Yeah. I wanted to offer the space to other community organizers. So I'll be hosting a couple workshops in the space and I'll be bringing Time Out Youth in to teach them how to paint their own eyeballs and to hold some space for the queer folks that I work with over there. And then Andrea Downs will be hosting a laundry day for artists, which is a series of workshops that she does um, called Airing Out the Dirty Laundry, where women come and talk about their experiences with sexual assault and rape. So I'm trying to hold as much space as possible because I know that in the artistic community, there's a large... Mm. A gap in like beautiful accessible space and so wanted to just maximize on the opportunity of having some space and let people be seen and celebrated so that's that's all of that but the end goal is just to keep sight in mind and see if we can mobilize and model this idea of like person-to-person fundraising like let's raise money and then like right awesome. shit like we'll fill out the forms and let's pay for some glasses wow so Bree. that is amazing thank you like I'm honestly just sitting here kind of stunned because not only are you helping to provide glasses, which we don't think about it, but if you have contacts or glasses Such a and think about not having them, then that's going to impede transportation, whether mm-hmm. that's a bus or going in a car. That's also going to impede your relationship with anybody trying to communicate. There's so much that we rely on to have good and clear vision. And then on top of that, just your willingness to use that space for um, other artists in the community. Thank you. It's just amazing. Thank you for being willing to do that. Put in all the hard work and time. Yeah, I have a... I have a personal story about vision, too, which drew me to this work and to this idea. I actually have macular degeneration, which is a genetic disease where the eye stalk that connects the eye and the brain um, degenerates over time. And so in about a couple of years from like the ages of like eight to 10, my eyesight went from perfect to awful really quickly. Uh And during like those years in my preteen years, the eye doctor did not and like his team did not want to give me the correct mm-hmm. prescription because every time he would give me the correct prescription, it would speed up the mm-hmm. um, of the disease. And so for a long time, I wasn't able to see like as high quality as I needed to see. And actually I found this note that my mom had written one of my teachers like not that long ago. And it said, put her in the front of the class. She can't see, she will not advocate for herself. <sighs> And like, that just like broke my heart that like she had written those things and that like, I, and I'm sure I was just like kind of mm-hmm. bebopping around and I became a very like listening learner, tactile learner because of it. But, you know, luckily like technology advanced and my dad has it as well. And we just have to be really careful, like with certain things and, and being cautious of how we treat our eyes. I got a concussion like two years ago and they were very concerned that that was going to like cause a progression of it by like just the blunt force trauma of it. And so like, I just have to be really careful around those things. But when I was growing up, like we didn't know, like, 
could, could I drive? Could I like do any of this stuff? And as an artist, yeah. like, I just hope my eyes like last me. And so I have this kind of like really serene and beautiful moment every time I'm like painting these people's eyes. I'm like, I have eyes. <laughs> I'm like, I'm people's eyes and I just wow I just love them so much like how beautiful is that and I know like you know we didn't have money growing up and and like not having access to the resources that I needed like um so simple like that like people might understand like it spun my life in a different direction and it created a lot of fear um around something that a lot of people just don't even think twice about and shouldn't have to be fearful so that's where I thought of this idea and also I just wanted I wanted to you know, paint, paint eyes. Now that I'm like painting these huge murals, my, my work is moving into like a different price range. So I wanted to offer something that was accessible, check off a couple of different boxes gotcha. so people can buy my work, but they can also like edge into like a community that I think people are curious about, but they don't know how to connect with. And art and artists can be those, um, those connectors. Yeah. I, I did not know that that was the name of the community. And I actually drive past that community Probably yeah. 50% of the time yeah. every morning on the way to work um, because I live on the west yeah. side and drive to the south side mm-hmm. and cut back on Remont. So, yeah. Yeah, well, um, feel free to stop in to the Burkill Community Resource Center and talk to Miss Debbie. She would literally love anybody to stop in. And it's a friendly group of people. I became exposed to them through seeing Alvin. Um, Alvin Jacobs exhibit up at the Gantt right now. And I work with the Gantt teaching and I have a piece on loan there right now, but seeing his exhibit, wanting to work more closely with that community. I worked with a couple communities through my career for a long time, including like Greer Heights and Montclair South. And so it's very important to just connect yeah. directly with people and not be like scared of like what separates us. I think a lot of people like want to help, but they don't know how. And it's just like, the first stop is just like stopping in and like saying hi <laughs> and like talking to people and yeah, not letting your like complex get the best of you. So yep. Awesome. Well, Bree, thank you so much for mm-hmm. spending some time with us. And I know we've talked about it a little bit, but can you remind everybody where they can find you and sign up for your newsletter and to learn about upcoming installments and all of that good stuff? Yeah, so y'all can just Google me, which I like saying, huh? <laughs> just Google me. <laughs> Everything is on Bree Stallings or BreeStallings.com. To learn more about the projects that I was talking about earlier, you can go to BreeStallings.com slash where I'm from or BreeStallings.com slash to be seen and celebrated. And it has its own website as well. On Instagram, it's at Brie Quixote, like Don Quixote, Q-U-I-X-O-T-E. And I'm always looking for more opportunities to talk about my work, to facilitate like corporate trainings and stuff for schools, like teach for CMS and train the teachers there and uh, to travel and do my work. And so I'm just going to use this as like an opportunity to manifest and like plant some seeds in people's ears. And uh, if you need a mural that's like community minded, Mm-hmm. Uh, let a girl know everything. You can reach me at info at com. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, and thank you to my good friend and co-host, David Roberts. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and you'll never miss an episode. We are available on all the major podcasting platforms, And while you're there, if you would leave us a rating and or review, we are always looking for more and more ways to hear from our listeners. You can find the links for today's guests and the show notes located at BeccaEpley.com. We do hope that you will join us for our next episode.